0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brian Hamilton of Deerfield Academy, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Simone Mueller. She is DFG Heisenberg Professor for Global Environmental History and Environmental Humanities at the University of Augsburg, Germany. She is the author of 2016's Wiring the World: The Social and Cultural Creation of Global Telegraph Networks. And she's here now to talk about her latest book. It's called The Toxic Ship, The Voyage of the Cayenne Sea and the Global Waste Trade. It comes out today from University of Washington Press. Dr. Mueller, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Brian. Hello to everyone listening. I'm so excited to, um, yeah, to be talking to you about the toxic ship.
0: So I mean, when I was a little environmentalist, solid waste was a very prominent environmental topic, both on the nightly news, but also on kids' shows about the environment and... In my adult life, it seems you know much dis- diminished in sort of that mainstream coverage. Um, you know, like everything, it's been eclipsed by climate, certainly. But I mean, we've had, I guess, like we've had. Yucca Mountain, and we've had uh, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, and there's been you know, recently the fight against single-use plastic in the United States, at least in Europe. Um, and maybe there's been some discussion of e-waste, kind of, if I don't know if that's really broken through in, in terms of like a household topic. But um, your book has certainly returned it, in my mind, um, to a place of prominence. And so I, I just wonder, what fascinates you about waste?
1: I have to say I'm actually coming the other way around. Um, So my journey is rather one from the telegraphs to the global waste economy. And so I have to start out with saying I wasn't always an environmental historian, but I was trained as a global historian, fascinated about globalization processes. And my first book, um, Wiring the World, was on the social and cultural creation of global telegraph networks. And that was just such a neat story in a way about globalization. You have all those primary sources that are heralding how submarine telegraphs are bringing about world peace and all those scholars who kind of join in the chorus with, yes, world communication is for global markets. It's the opening of, of world politics, the global governance really is kind of bringing the world together. And I felt at the end of the book that yes, there, there is some truth to this global connectivity and all the positive aspects to it. But I wasn't quite content with just that perspective. And so I started looking for um, what I call the dark side of power, kind of, like, uh, what I, what I, kind of like the negative effects of a globalized world. And that's how I ended up musing about hazardous waste and and the global waste economy I felt like okay if you if you really want to dig into um, the dark side of power of globalization there are actually like three three aspects you could study um, human trafficking um, drugs and um, weapon trade or the trade in hazardous waste and I felt like the the last one was probably the most approachable as a historian um, and so that's how I Ventured into studying the global waste economy,
0: and that's how you got to this ship here. And it's it's a great narrative device for telling a global story in a coherent way that also is immensely complex because you can follow the ship as, as often as you can. Sometimes the ship goes off off you know, out of view. But um, let's let's begin at the beginning so we can understand how this how this works. Your story begins in Philadelphia, the, the home port. For the, for the Cayenne Sea and its voyage. Can you set the scene for us? You know, what do we need to know about this city? And you're very clear to say that it was Philadelphia, but it also could have been other cities in the United States and, and elsewhere. Um, but what do we need to know about Philadelphia at this time um, to understand why it, it put 15,000 tons of ash on the ship at, in 1986?
1: Right. So the the story of the currency starts in the streets of Philadelphia, and I think I just like the sound of that sentence. Um, and it just comes neatly together. Um, but essentially, it is a story that starts and ends in Philadelphia, but it's not per se about Philadelphia, and I think that's quite important to tease out. Um, but it rather starts in a city, in a U.S. city, in the nineteen eighties that has been struggling immensely from like, the financial downturn from unemployment and like, all the um downward spiraling effects that came with um de-industrialization. Um and so we do we do have a city that for instance is struggling with like an immense um loss of jobs because like industrial companies move out um, with uh, an immensely um, fundamental overhaul of like, the, the ethnic um, setup of the city I mean 1980s Philadelphia it becomes predominantly African American it becomes predominantly um, with like, with people from with with an immigrant status with a non-white status you have you have really, like, the, more and more are pitting against each other of like Philadelphia the city with like the counties around it that become predominantly white um, and so there's like the the affluent suburbs and the struggling city in the middle and I feel like that's the composition that we have not only in Philadelphia but that we have in Pittsburgh that we have in Detroit um, or other like, cities in the US that are like, centered around the first world or just going like, to struggling former industrial centers. And here that that's where like, in the midst of this struggle, in the midst of this economic and financial struggle, because if you have like the high um, um, the high wage earners move outside of the city, it also means you have less of a tax base for like, which you need. Um, to to pay for like city services, and that's how that story relates to waste, right? If you like, don't have enough money to actually pay for the services, and so this like this the story of the client C really starts with like an urban waste crisis in Philadelphia, um, with like the sanitary workers being on strike um, for three weeks straight, and it's like it's July. Um, 1986. It's like it's humid, it's hot, so the whole city is like smelling of putrefying garbage, and that's like when you see two things at the same time. You see like how how longs the city's been expanding without really figuring out its waste disposal system, how it's like built on a broken waste disposal system, and um, that people are not willing to put up with the garbage in their midst. And so that's when like, the decision in the city council is made to try something new, to really say, okay, we're shipping Philadelphia waste, not only to New Jersey or to the counties around it, which was kind like, the go-to method beforehand, but we're shipping it abroad.
0: And before we talk about that, that global trade, um, could you also say a bit about just the ash itself and the composition of the ash? I, I was uh, teaching an environmental studies course once, and I, I remember I had this like you know, 4 AM idea where I just brought in some some um, sweepings from my floor and said, "Let's talk about this as a historical document. What can we tell about me or about the time we're living in from, from this literal dust?" You know that I, I mean, you know, there was maybe some needles from Christmas from a Christmas tree or that kind of thing, but also there was some stuff that was you know hadn't been produced 50 years earlier and things like that. So what what if we were to look into the ash? What would we find there?
1: That's such a neat way. I think I might steal that idea for teaching.
0: Um, <laughs> <laughs> Come it was a little weird at first. We were like, "Here's some garbage from my house."
1: <laughs> um, true, but my experience is like students usually like really jump jump at it. Um, so the composition of the ash—that's kind of two things at the same time. There's kind of like a scientific answer that I can give to you, which is relatively short. So the scientific answer is it's incinerator ash. That means it's the end product that comes from incinerating philadelphia household waste at the time like at the time the city has two big incinerators that are really running over time to accommodate the raise the the like the rising levels of of waste in the city and so what you would find in it um are just like the burnings of um leftover food um, Paper, um, plastics, um, let's say for like 1980s is the time where TV dinners um, are really, really big. So that would probably go in that. Um, and so everything that people would throw away at home, that's what kind of goes into the incinerators and it's burned. Um, and like kind of, the end product of it is, is the ash. But the point, and that's kind of like the trouble in the 1980s is um that waste incineration um can produce um hazardous waste from normal solid household waste um and because like when you put together gleaning something that's kind of like in wooden paper with plastics that's when you create um toxicants um dioxins so when when you burn household waste and you have components of limine, which is like basically like in, in paper, together with plastics, that's when, like in the process of burning these two elements together, that's when you create dioxins and furans, which are highly toxic and carcinogenic um, elements. And in addition to that, what also waste incineration does, it's. Um, It's shrinking the waste level and therefore concentrating, um, for instance, like heavy metals that are in it. So as much as we like waste incineration, because it really reduces the amount of waste that we have, the process is um, difficult or questionable because at the end of it, it does produce something that's more toxic than what came in it, at least in the 1980s.
0: I think I always assumed incineration that, that there was a long period in which people did it ignorantly. We're like, oh, problem solved. It's out of here. And then there was a period after, you know, consciousness was raised by environmentalism or whatever, where people did it kind of shamefully. But there's this middle period here where you show the mayor and others sort of excited about, for instance, waste, waste to energy as an alternative to recycling in the city um, when both of those were live options. Why was that?
1: Absolutely, because in the nineteen eighties, we're like we are in this middle period with waste incinerators. It's like they're coming back to life. They seem they seem the solution to the problem um, of rising um, waste waste levels, waste amounts that need to go somewhere. So you need to reduce the kind of kind of amount of it. And they also come in handy at a time when recycling really wasn't something that many clinic people, many mayors, many clinic people in the the city governance were really too keen on because they felt it was not something that would work. Um, So in Philadelphia at the time, you really had had a battle going on between the mayor who was absolutely pro-waste incineration and actually wanted to build um, another waste-to-energy incinerator. And interestingly, his city council who followed the lead from a couple of neighborhood initiatives who did not want yet another waste incinerator in the city, um, but rather wanted to try um, implementing a thorough recycling system. And it's also a time, this is the battle between two political discussions in the city. And it's also the time when science in itself predominantly still presumes, so the majority um, position of scientists at the time, like 1986 um, to 1988, is that waste incineration actually is not harmful, that you can put the ash that comes from waste incineration, that you just can't put it in, in landfills. There are a couple of scientists who challenge that, who say, like, no matter how high the temperature is, no matter how well you burn it, you still create dioxins and furans. you still create heavy metals, and you still create hazardous waste. But that wasn't followed. That wasn't followed in science. And most importantly, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, also didn't follow on that. And so this is what a made waste incineration actually like um an attractive waste disposal method
0: and what's unusual in this part of the story is that we have this waste is incinerated but the ash doesn't go to a neighboring county doesn't go to new jersey as it might have in the past it goes on to a ship it goes on to the, the cayenne sea and and but you note that this is actually that philadelphia wasn't necessarily a pioneer in this way that there had already been at this time a kind of a, you, say, you call it a new and flourishing international trade in waste. What did that trade look like and, and why did it happen then?
1: The export of hazardous waste is actually directly correlated to um, the passage of stricter environmental regulation in the United States. Um, and that all has to do with the Solid Waste Act and like a couple of amendments um, that 1976, you have RECRA, the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act passed, and it's really, really interesting to see how the, the moment RECRA is implemented in 1980, you have out of a sudden decline, the rise mm-hmm. in um, export notifications for hazardous waste. Um, and that has to do with the fact that prior to RECRAM, prior to the Resource Conservation Recovery Act in the United States, you had no legal definition of what hazardous waste was. That only comes into play with that amendment to the Solid Waste Act. Um, And once you have it defined, once you have the material defined, obviously it's become much more expensive to dispose of what now is considered hazardous waste. And Rather than paying those much, much higher prices, I mean, I'm saying we're talking about like a change of, um, let's say for incinerating uh, a ton of hazardous waste prior would cost something like um, $50 and then it could go up to $200 or um, for landfilling, even like $1,000. So there are really, really significant differences um, in terms of costs. At the same time, you have a much greater awareness of people about waste. I mean, you said it in your opening, waste, currently, it's more climate change that we talk about. But the 1980s, that really was um, the environmental activist era focused on pollution, focused on contamination, focused on waste, focused on incineration. Um, So it really was a topic on the forefront. And more and more communities were um, against building waste incinerators in them or living close to a waste dump, to a waste disposal site. And so even in a country as spacious as the United States, they are actually running out of space where to put the waste. So these two things together kind of like are push factors that more and more waste traders consider it a viable and legal alternative to start exporting their waste to other countries. Because that is something that is really, really important if we look at the waste trade from a global perspective. Not every country has the same regulations as the United States. So, 1980, RECRA in place, the United States has a pretty clear and pretty strict definition of what hazardous waste is, how it's supposed to be dealt with, but many, many other countries around the world, actually most other countries around the world, do not. And hence, the same material that's classified in the US as hazardous waste can easily and legally be Disposed of as municipal solid waste, as um, bricks building material, as um, fertilizer, or any other usage you can actually think of in another country. And that obviously, kind of reduces the costs immensely um, and makes it really a viable
0: option. Yes. Could you say more about that? I mean, so you had noticed, noted that in the early period of of exporting hazardous waste, much of it went to Mexico and especially Canada, but the the Cayenne Sea folks look instead to the Caribbean. They first look to the Bahamas and then and then Haiti. Um, and you say, you know, you describe the Greater Caribbean kind of evocatively as a place where U.S. influence was discernible, largely in the form of waste. What do you mean by that, and and how did that come to be?
1: Yeah. So, um, in, in the 1980s, obviously, like, if you look at the, like, the land routes, um, Canada and Mexico are so close. So, most of US waste that gets exported actually gets exported to Canada and Mexico, just because the, that, that's a country uh, the United States shares like, the longest borders with. But increasingly, waste traders also started looking into the Greater Caribbean, so that's kind of like the Caribbean Caribbean islands, but also like Central America, and bits and pieces of like Northern Latin America. Uh, And that was because um, there were already pre-established trading connections um, and also pre-established relationships of um, contamination, and that's what I, what I meant here, and here go back. Um, for instance, um, long before the waste ships from the US started to arrive in the Caribbean or in the greater Caribbean, that region has already um, been targeted from the US side as one of, um, like, an, an environmental resource to um, support and sustain here's lifestyle it starts with kind of, let's think about nineteen nineteen 1920s 1930s um, and kind of the build up of um, the empire of El Pulpo United Fruit so then the, the kraken and kind of all the plantations on the on the different islands and also kind of on the different stretches of Latin America so already here we have the exploitation of that environment, of that nature, to support US consumers and US markets. And in that connection, obviously, we already have also the export and the use of pesticides. We have um, deforestation um, to to support the plantations. We have the use of pesticides. Um, So already, um, before the waste ships come, Lots of environmental pollution in this region is happening in connection to um, sustaining um, US markets and feeding US consumers.
0: And so one would think that this plan probably would have worked—that we could just dump the ash, you know, pay, make, make a deal, and, and dump the ash in one of these nations. But it doesn't work. Um, and, and you do a really nice job of, of tracing changes to the social and economic context in the region to understand why it doesn't work. But what, can you give us a preview of that? Why, why didn't it? Ha- why didn't it work?
1: So quite similarly to um, why. Um, Communities in the US no longer wanted to have um, waste disposal sites close to them. Um, that also happens in the, in the greater Caribbean and then later also like um, on the African continent where the currency moves to next. Um, what we see happening is a correlation um, on the one hand between also growing environmental awareness that is simultaneously also. F- like nourished through environmental activist groups like Greenpeace or Friends of the Earth from the US that like reach out and warn the greater Caribbean nations about what's going on. And that is coupled or that like environmentalism can actually like take off because at the time we also see a greater political and economic estrangement between many of the countries in the greater Caribbean and the United States. I mean, most. Um, Noteworthy there is a, is a case of Panama where they have the Noriega government um, that really kind of gets in this um, in this fight with with the US of kind of, violent protests against um, US presence in Panama with kind of the storming of the US embassy uh, and eventually kind of, the CIA um, moving into the country and trying to kind of, replace Noriega. So um, in that context, it becomes fashionable to question U.S. presence and to question, like, the environmental um, exploitation of their countries. So, they're no longer U.S. traders are no longer just seen as um, harbingers of um, development and progress, but rather um, as those destroying the livelihoods of people. And um so what we see in, for instance in the in the case of, of Panama it's like directly linked to an anti an anti-Americanism that's rising at the time. In the case of Haiti, it's very interesting that like, the protest against the ash that the client see ends up abandoning, um, for lack of a better word. Um in in Goliath, um, that happens right after the ousting of the dictatorship of, of baby dog. So this is like, as part of the first steps in um, practicing democracy, um, environmentalism gets coupled to democratic practice to neighborhood committees. And that really like, then also pushes that kind of environmentalism that is very outspoken, very vocal against the waste exports from the U.S. to the Greater Caribbean.
0: And alongside this uh, resistance from populations in in citizens of Caribbean nations, there was substantial concern within the federal government of the United States about U.S. firms and U.S. cities exporting hazardous waste abroad. More concern than I would have expected there to be, I'll I'll be honest. Um, And and voices in both parties to some extent. and so what contributed, to the, why, you know, why were U.S. policymakers worried about this? And then how did that lead to some, how did that inform policymaking?
1: Yeah, that, that is also kind of one of the surprises I had. I was, I was fascinated to see um, Mike Seiner, for instance, um, discuss, kind of like, as, as, as head of the, the powerful um, committee of, of government operations, like, really rally against the exports of hazardous waste. Um, I think their concern was not necessarily one about the environment in the greater Caribbean but their concern was one of foreign policy and um, the image of the United States in the world at large and here we do see um, kind of like a split in positions in the government for instance the the US EPA is very much siding um, as one could say is almost tradition in the 1980s to use EPA siding with, with companies with more like kind of the, the economic sector um, than with environmental protection, and they say, well, if we, if we are actually kind of making export rules stricter, we're um, limiting the chances of U.S. companies to um, be successful abroad. Um, So that is their main concern. They need to protect business people um, and their exports, which is kind of funny because it's the Environmental Protection Agency that they say we actually need to protect businesses as they're doing business abroad. Um, Yeah, (laughs) probably. (laughs) Yeah, Um, But there is a bipartisan consensus um, outside the EPA that then is like really pushing through um, a change in, in the governance on those exports um, that is very worried about US standing. I mean they're discussing we cannot export another we cannot export a US love canal. I think that really is um, like the memory that they have in their minds and the fear that they have in their minds that like if they end up exporting something like a love canal to other countries, so this is absolutely and fundamentally going to damage um, the US image in the world, coming at an, in, a, in a crucial time period um, at the end of the Cold War, where that image is key for the negotiations.
0: And this is a story that isn't just shaped by the politics of international development or international relations. It's also very much shaped by the politics of science. Um, and so meanwhile, as the Sea the is chugging about the, the Atlantic sh- shopping for a port, um, there's all this debate about how dangerous this stuff is that it has on board um, as it's being described as dangerous by policymakers and, and, and activists. Um, you memorably refer to its slowed its here as the most tested and most contested ash on the planet. Um, why was there so much uncertainty about the threat that was posed by this ash? And and by what means did stakeholders attempt to combat that uncertainty?
1: Um, so I think that question actually goes, goes deep with or resonates with environmental historians working on any contamination cases. We're always shooting at a moving target and establish some sort of causality between like you have a contaminant here and then you have the damage here. There's a direct correlation. I mean, that's not how how the whole... Um, field of, of the history of pollution and contamination works. But in that case, it is particularly noteworthy how often that particular heap of ash gets tested and contested again. And what we see happening here, I mean, earlier on, when you asked me about the composition of, of the ash, I said, well, there's a short scientific answer, and then there's a longer answer, which is probably the one I'm going to give you now. Um, So um, what we we have in the background obviously is that there is this discussion and debate in the United States among scientists um, about incinerator ash and then connected to that, a discussion within the US EPA if incinerator ash should be... Part of Recra as hazardous waste, or it, if it should be exempt from hazardous waste regulation. So the U.S. itself isn't sure: is this hazardous waste? Is this not hazardous waste? So that is one point to the puzzle piece. Another point that we need to understand is that the 1980s is also a time when we, when scientists um, are now able to do much, much finer tests. So they're able to measure toxicants and parts per trillion. Um, And that is something that not every laboratory can do, and certainly not a laboratory in the greater Caribbean. So the Caribbean nations, the greater Caribbean nations, and also the African nations, they need to rely on the test results that the exporters give them. Or they need to, like, send it to another laboratory somewhere in another European country. And that brings in or brings up the issue of trust. They need to trust that what the traders say is in the ash or is in the waste actually really is in it. And here is where, um, like, the breach of trust starts. Um, because... Um, the, the discussion was built around um, the, the EPA and also the laboratories just considering the ash, but not considering where it was supposed to be dumped. So it does make a significant difference if you say, well, this is incinerator ash and it can be safely put in a sealed landfill. Right, A sanitary landfill that it's sealed on the bottom and it's sealed on the top. So here it actually is quite safe to put it. But it's a very, very different story if you take that same ash and just put it as fill in a wetland um, where there's no sealed container around it where dioxins and uh, furans and also PCBs, um, heavy metals can just like seep in the ground and in the groundwater, contaminate um, the soil, the water, and also collect like, the air if the wind takes it up. Um, but tests weren't considering this context. Um, the party that considered that kind of context were the environmental activists, and they were sowing the doubts about um, the truthfulness of the accounts that the traders gave the nations in the greater Caribbean and so what we see happening over the course of um, 1988 largely is that the story just takes off in two opposite directions and science is absolutely discredited like importing nations in the greater Caribbean or almost from all over the, the global south have completely lost trust in what US laboratories, the US EPA, even tells them about, like, the different cargos on the waste chips. Um, because they start they start seeing that the EPA does not consider that the context of where they ash or any waste ends up is different, and they also start seeing that communities in the US do not want it. So there's kind of this ping pong effect. So why, why should we in Panama or on the Bahamas? Why should we accept a cargo that US communities do not want? And it's it's very very interesting how um, kind of to see the end point of that that really kind of um, break, breaking breaking um, breaking apart of of any kind of scientific objectivity um, when we go to one of the Greenpeace accounts. So Greenpeace, um, in January 1988, a team of Greenpeace members, they actually come to Haiti to inform the people about like the composition of the ash, to work together with them to test the ash again, um, to see where it's being stored. Um, and they hold a press conference and um when i was interviewing one of the, one of the greenpeace activists there he said um he was so surprised to see how um in the minds of people the life of the of the waste, the life of the ash had taken on something completely different and then he says um for all what it's worth it, it could have been it could have been radioactive we actually had to downplay um the the dangers that were connected um with that ash because they were afraid that there were climate riots about to break out because people were just not listening anymore to anything for them client toxic waste was as was simultaneously or was synonymous to um nuclear waste and in that moment um you could have come with any kind of tests; nobody would believe you anymore. And it's very interesting um, from, science, from a scientific perspective how the waste traders are attempting to, kind of like, to stop that, um, that distrust, and so they fall back on what I what I think is kind of like the, the the simplest test. We have in science, but also probably one of the most powerful. They stand there and they eat the ash. So he comes. He comes to Haiti and he's like really kind of like eating eating the stuff and offering his own body, um, saying, "Listen, I, I don't fall dead from it." Um, just saying that he has no idea about kind of like the differences in chronic and acute poisoning. Um, yeah. Uh, on on that end, is it's really really interesting, um.
0: and it's really this this global resistance that's. Um, that's led by Greenpeace, but also by local populations and, and their understandings of, of the threat posed by the ash that that really cements the legacy of of the Cayenne Sea. As you, as you note many times, you know it's the the load itself is not the most dangerous hazardous waste that has been trucked around the world. Um, it's not that much. Fifteen thousand tons of ash is not a lot of ash as ash goes. I, I learned in your book, um, but it was really the, all the attention that was heaped on it and and the political ramifications of that. And so could you could you spin out a bit about about those ramifications, what happened? How did we get to, for instance, the basal conventions?
1: Yeah, so as you quite rightly pointed out, I mean, in in like the larger scheme of the global waste economy, the client CEO actually isn't the most dangerous ship that's out there among the toxic ships that we have. Fought. Um, what is super interesting is how it takes on a life of its own. And because, I mean, the story is one of the, the ship changing names, ship changing owners, um, from the sea to the Felicia to the Palicano to the San Antonio, it is a game of cat and mouse. And it makes for such a good story um, for environmentalists um, that... We learned a lot about clients, successful environmental campaigning. You need a good story, and the client was such a good story um, that you could, no matter what actually was happening about that one particular ship, you could still tease out um, the, the fundamental um, themes and topics, what the global waste trade actually stood for. And this is what um, an alliance of um, environmental justice activists did. And so here, obviously, we have Greenpeace on the forefront um, with their global waste campaign. But they were very clever in teaming up with local environmentalist groups from Haiti, from Panama, um, from around Africa. and they were really, really successful in teaming up um, with the Organization of African Unity at the time. Um, and so in that alliance, they were so strong and powerful to like, push a process, come to an end point, and the end point is the other convention on the transboundary movement of, of hazardous waste and their disposal that had been cooking for almost a decade. It's not that this Sky and Seek, of like, single-handedly pushed through the Balfour Convention, but it is, it is the kind of scandal, it is the kind of um, campaigning one needed to bring that process to a successful conclusion.
0: Yeah, and it's, it, it, actually, I have to note, it is such a good story, especially as told by you, and I'm doing, I am I can't do justice to it. I can't ask questions that allow us to kind of trap the narrative, so you're going to have to buy the book. But it's also, as you're saying, it's a very politically useful story for, for opponents of the global waste trade. Um, and yet you, you conclude that the political utility of it really, um, in your words, kind of vanished completely in the 90s and, and the early parts of the 21st century. Um, why, what, what thwarted the potential that it had?
1: Yeah, so, this for me, if, if you ask me, like, what is, what is Klein, one of the most important chapters of this book, I think the story that I tell in my final chapter on what happens after the Battle Convention, to me, is almost the most important one, because it puts that success story of the Battle Convention in perspective, and says also a lot about Klein, UN Conventions, and... What um, happens to them once they are in place? I mean, something that we see now with kind of the Paris Agreement. Um, nations can agree on a lot of things, but it's the question of putting this agreement into practice. And here we also see kind of the Basel Convention really, really stalling. Because um, two, two things happen at, at the same time. You have um, or actually, three things happening. You have the Basel Convention right implemented at a time when um, youth elections are just passed. Um, and so, this momentum where, I mean, prior to Basel, we had um, Bush senior versus Dukakis, and like both are actually kind of running on an environmental ticket. Um, so, out of a sudden, you have this presidential race where environmental issues are on the forefront. And obviously, both are standing there and saying, we support um, the Basel Convention. We support like, tighter waste legislations nationally and internationally. Well, we're past this um, convention uh, or, or we're past this election. And now, youth um, legislators are faced with a con- conundrum that is... Um, With any um, UN convention, it's a matter of, are you first changing federal legislation and then accepting or and then joining the UN convention? Or um, are you joining the UN convention and hence let the United Nations regulations actually override your own national legislations? And that is quite difficult, given that um, environmental legislations in the US are not just um an issue of the national level, but there are so many federal states that are also part of it. So what would happen if the US joined the US Basel Convention? Um, it would actually allow an international governance body to override uh, and to override um environmental legislations of all its federal states. And I mean you if you if you listen carefully, I said if if it were to join. So the the end point of the of the story is that neither you, the United States nor Haiti, for that matter, did join the Basel Convention. So we have a US gov, uh, we have a United Nations um, governance tool in place where, kind of like one of the most important, if not the most important player, when it comes to the production of hazardous waste, is not part of the agreement. So that is one of the un- unresolved conundrums that we have. Another one is in the battle convention itself. Because the con- battle convention, although it's followed by the Stockholm convention, and the Rotterdam convention, so there are more to follow in, in the 90s and the 2000s, it still has a loophole that's, I would say, um, as, as, as large as um I don't know um yeah yeah you could you could drive a ship through it absolutely um, and that is that um, disposal is not permitted but recycling is and so the same schemes can actually continue um, they just get a different headline um, and then there is um um, waste exports still happening just under the premise of recycling. And that's what we see now with e-waste, that's what we see with plastics, um, that the ships just continue to go um, abroad, um, saying they bring those um, waste objects or waste products um, for recycling to the other countries. and also in the way it's implemented, the Basel Convention very much happens still on a philosophical um, agreement on what waste and hazardous waste is, which means that it still allows for a lot of difference between the nations or the members of that convention in terms of what they consider to be hazardous waste, um, where they put thresholds, Um, what kind of methods um, they allow to be used for certain materials to be disposed of, what they consider as recycling, what they consider as second-hand material. And since there's only a philosophical agreement on a lot of these terms, it's actually a very weak convention. And the last thing that happens, just to add to this, is... um, the kind like, of the bittersweet um, taste of success is that once you have um, such a regulation in place, it becomes really hard for environmental campaigning to target something. And that's also what we see now with like, the, the climate accords. Like it's it's easier to rally against a villain, but once you have something like the Paris Climate Accords in place, um, you need to go down to, to the nitty-gritties of the details. Um, and that's also something that um, Greenpeace headquarters realized, and unfortunately, I would say now, as the as historian looking at that story, um, they decided that Basel was enough of a success and didn't push further or didn't expand their campaign, some of the campaigners actually wanted um, to not only look at the end product of of the the global commodity chain, um, to not just look at the export of waste, but also to look at the relocation of dirty industries, the way um, primary resources are being extracted. Um, But Greenpeace shifted in its campaigning rather, again, towards the um, dramatic images that we see with, kind of like, the oil platforms um, and that.
0: Yeah, one one thing that kept nagging at me while I was reading, and, and you you explicitly call attention to this in your conclusion, was that when all of this national attention was being, um, was tracking the Cayenne the Sea, and there was all this talk about solid waste in the 80s, it was just striking how little discussion there was about the production of the stuff that ended up being there. There's lots of talk about the consumption of it, lots of talk about the the disposal of it, certainly, but but very little talk about the actual upstream, the, how it all began. Um, and I wonder why you think that was, and and how much better do you think we're doing today at kind of attending to the entire life cycle of our stuff.
1: So I'm gonna I'm gonna start with the second question because it's something that actually does give me hope. Uh, that we're doing better today than we were in the 1980s. Um, We're actually recycling rates up, reusing rates up, um, and reducing waste is more of a topic than it was in the 1980s. Um, Having said that, we're still facing... I mean, the the level of of waste is still rising. Um, So reduction and reuse of recycle really hasn't um had the the effect that environmentalists would have hoped it it does although it's more of a topic it's more of a practice um, so there's hope that we can actually like just scale it up um, i think the 1980s just wasn't a good time to think about kind of, like um, reducing waste Given that many industrial countries have just come, particularly the United States, have just come out of um, an economic recession. Um, it's ergonomics, it's like more about kind of creating more growth um, and more expansion. It's also, it's also still in this in this kind of like post-war um, era of consumption, almost of overconsumption. Um, as as part of a um, middle class identity, um, and so topics like you actually need to reduce um, your consumption, you need to buy less, just weren't something that would sit well with with kind of society at large. Um, yeah, and that comes later. Um, it starts in the two thousands. Um, Yeah, particularly with reducing and reusing. Um, Recycling, to some degree, is there in the 1980s. Um, But yeah, I I feel like the, the society in that particular moment just wasn't ready yet to act on it.
0: I'd love to hear a little bit about about how you put the book together and the and the research. One of the things that I haven't allowed you to do justice to at all here is is how prominent and, and interesting the corporate and the firm the corporations and the firms are that are Commissioning and and um, charting and also you know funding and and also the laborers working on the ship itself um, how much they are in the book and how how exciting it is uh, they are as characters um, stories about corporations and, and business firms are always you know tough research challenges um, and I wonder how how you kind of stitch that story together what kind of you know what kind of documents were you know do you wish maybe you wish you had available to you that weren't you know is that what parts of the story are are still kind of the murkiest even after all of your your work here.
1: So, to be honest, like two years into the story, I almost abandoned it completely because of I felt like um, I'm I'm not finding the right entry point um, to, um, yeah, to the to the global waste economy, and part of it is that so many of the of the waste traders. Um, They've disappeared. They've not kept company records or a company archive. Um, they've gone broke. Um, also, like on the importing side, oftentimes it's super difficult to figure out who the importer was. Um, it, you just Oftentimes you just have a name and, and a town or a city where the importer came from. Um, and so it was so hard to stitch that together from... Like from the inside perspective of, um, kind of like the economic deal that's going on, and I was I was lucky that it was just at that moment when I felt like I I'm running against dead ends that I changed my approach and I started doing oral history interviews. I'm like, okay, I'm not getting anywhere with the companies, so let's start talking to people, and that's when I started talking. Um, to journalists who had chronicled some of the, some of the waste deals, not only the and Sea, but also the Mubo, um, the Bark, the Bunya, the Karen B, like lots of those ships. Um, and I started talking to um, some of the activists from the Times, some of the actors in Philadelphia. And that's when the story started coming to life to me. Um, through their memories, um, also through the materials that they had still kind of, sitting in their basement, um, on what they had collected um, about it. And step by step, it was really going back to the people that opened doors that I hadn't seen earlier on. And they would then kind of usher like, me towards sources or um, would is really, really key in the story of the cliancy are the court cases. I mean, eventually, like the two traders, the two U.S. representatives um, connected to the case, they get convicted. Um, and so there's a humongous paper trail actually sitting in, like, the National Archives in Philadelphia because of the court cases that you have. And that is what opens up um, the story to you or, or to me. And then, kind of like, following down that path, um, one, of, one of the um, most beautiful collections that I encountered, I'm, I'm just kind of like um, encouraging everyone with, with an interest in, in Caribbean history to, to look at that source. Um, Duke University Libraries has a donation from Radio Haiti Inter. So Radio Haiti um, was um, like um, a, a communications channel, a, a, a radio station that um, was very much um, like um, helping democracy take take hold in in Haiti. And they were, following what happened around the Colliancy from beginning to end Um, and so all these papers like all the radio clips um, are donated or have been donated to to Duke University Um, and so that was just a treasure trove to uncover that story or to tell a story not only from a U.S. perspective but also from the importer perspective, from the perspective of the Haitians and from the environmental activists on the ground and the locals on the ground. Um, It was a little tricky to to hear into and to translate Haitian Creole, Um, but it's just such a wonderful, wonderful resource.
0: that's so cool. Uh, well, I, it, the book is such an achievement. Um, and I know readers are going to love it. And it's going to make my next question sound greedy. Um, but I wonder if you have any, before I let you go, if you have any current or future projects you're willing to give us a, a sneak preview of?
1: Yeah. Um, so the toxic ship really brought me in in a way to, to I felt just with like my my first book um, on the wiring of the world. I, I felt like I had come to a dead end, and I needed to approach my intellectual puzzle from from a different angle. And that also, interestingly, has happened again as I had finished *A Toxic Ship*. And the conundrum that stayed with me, and that I'm now engaging with under the the concept of toxic comments, is the binaries that we have. Um, so the toxic ship kind of left me wondering about. So how do we actually live with with a permanently polluted planet? So in the story, there's there's all this discussion and talk about cleanup, about remediation, um, about recycling. Um, But as you hinted at, we need to go, um, first of all, we need to go to to the beginning of the commodity chain. But then we also need to come to terms with the question that we cannot um, go back to a point where we actually live on a pristine and um, um, clean planet there will always be contamination. And even if you do remediation, um, the the contaminated soil, it also has to go somewhere. Um, and so with toxic commons, I'm grappling with, with the questions um, of how do we live well with an increasingly contaminated planet where um, it's actually a, a play in words with toxic commons, how our... Common pool resources become increasingly toxic, increasingly contaminated, and at the same time, um, it becomes increasingly common for us to be exposed to that contamination, albeit to to very unequal degrees. And so, the question that puzzles me is, how do how do we live with it, um, and how do we live with it in a way that it's not? historically marked sacrifice zones? How do we live with it that it's not marginalized people, that this increasingly contaminated planet is not a reproduction of global inequality, of geographies, of of racism yet again? I do not have an answer to it yet, but I feel what it le- or what it led me to is to ask different questions, not about remediation, but more about what it, what does it mean to, to be with that, to live with, with it.
0: What a project. That's something for us to really be excited to look forward to in the future. Here in the present, this book again is The Toxic Ship, The Voyage of the Cayenne Sea and the Global Waste Trade. It comes out today from University of Washington Press. Its author is, and my guest has been Dr. Simone Mueller. Simone, thank you so much for your time and for this book.
1: Well, thank you so much for talking with me about it. It's been, it's been a joy and a pleasure.